0: Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 to 14. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, and will betray one another, and will hate one another. And then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Does any of this seem familiar? But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Let's pray. Father, we pause as we open up your word now to pray to seek your face. And we ask that you would impress upon our hearts these things that you spoke to us and are still speaking to those who have ears to hear. We're living in a world and a time, Lord, where we're seeing some of these things coming to pass before our very eyes. So we know we're getting closer and closer to your imminent return. And we pray that you would find us ready and faithful and representing you well in the earth until you come again. And so bless our time now in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. Chapter 24 here in the Gospel of Matthew occurs during the last week of Jesus' life leading up to his crucifixion. The scene of chapter 24 is Jerusalem. He has gone to Jerusalem with his disciples to celebrate the Feast of Passover, which is immediately followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it is an eight-day holiday. Jesus has gone to Jerusalem to celebrate this with his disciples. And it was typical for any rabbi, but this is standard for Jesus. We see this through the Gospels. That uh, during feast time, what Jesus would do is he would go to the courtyard area of the temple during the daytime and he would teach. And then at nighttime, he and his disciples would retreat to the Mount of Olives, just a short walk from. The old city of Jerusalem, down the Kidron Valley, over to the Mount of Olives, and that's where they would find lodging. And that was typical for any time they went to Jerusalem for the feasts. He would go to the city to teach during the day, and then they would retreat to the Mount of Olives at night to find lodging. Because you have to remember, when, when feast time would roll around in Jerusalem, the population would swell immensely. And there's no, there's no place to find, you know, there's no Holiday Inn, there's no, you know, Motel 6, nobody's leaving the light on for you, right? So you have no place to lodge except, you, you know, you just sleep against an olive tree or you, you pull up the ground and that's your bed. And so that's what Jesus would typically do. And here in chapter 24, what we read is he has just finished there in the courtyard area. In fact, in chapter 23, our study from last week, part of what he was doing when he was teaching in the courtyard area on that day was he was rebuking the religious Pharisees and leaders of his day for their stubborn refusal to accept him and for the way they would try to malign him. So he's just finished all that and he's been teaching in the temple courtyard When we get to chapter 24, he's now retreating with his disciples to the Mount of Olives to find lodging for the night. And as they're leaving, his disciples draw his attention to the beauty of the temple there that was built to God to honor him there in Jerusalem. And it was a spectacular building. It was a very beautiful building, and we only know as much from what we read in the scriptures, because obviously there's no picture, there's no drawing, and there's no remnant at all of the temple of Jerusalem that stood there at one time. Uh, but it was a very beautiful building built of the white Jerusalem stone that was quarried right there in proximity to the temple area, and they would uh, transport the the uh, hand-hewn stones To The temple mount and it would be built without the sound of a chisel or a hammer It would all be placed beautifully the bible says to make this incredible structure to god And we don't even know the full extent of its beauty because by the time we read of jesus's ministry in jerusalem The first temple built by solomon has been refurbished by king herod in fact in the days of jesus it's still in the process of being refurbished But it stood much more beautiful than even what Solomon built. And in 1 Kings chapter 6, the Bible gives us the dimensions of the first temple that Solomon built. So you have to think it's even more beautiful than what Solomon built because Herod refurbished it. But in 1 Kings chapter 6, it gives us the dimensions of the temple in in cubits. It was 60 cubits long, it was 20 cubits wide, and it was 30 cubits high. That translates to roughly 90 feet long, talking about the temple, 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. So this is roughly four stories high. And you have to, again, put yourself back in the day because this was a very unusual, beautiful, and large structure for the day. This is at a time when most families would live in a single 12 by 12 room. With, uh, with stone walls and a thatched roof. That was it. So, when you get to Jerusalem and you see this beautiful, white, glowing, glistening building, because often it would catch the sunlight in the middle of the day and it would be spectacular, I mean, it, it, you, you're enamored by it. it. There's nothing like it anywhere else in the world at this time. And so, as they're leaving Jerusalem at the end of this one day to go to the Mount of Olives, His disciples here at the beginning of chapter 24, they say to Jesus, wow, I mean, take a look. Like, let's look back over our shoulder here. This is one beautiful building. And Jesus is basically like, ah, it's going to be destroyed. And they're like, what? What are you talking about? And this is where Jesus prophesies right here. Look again at verse 2. He says, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. And Jesus' words would come to pass about 40 years later, when in 70 AD, the Romans, in an attempt, it was a successful attempt, sadly, to put an end to a Jewish revolt, the Romans went in and totally destroyed the temple led by, at the time, Emperor Titus Vespasian, 70 AD. He ordered his Roman troops to go in to put an end to this uh, Jewish revolt, and they completely and utterly destroyed the temple. They burned it. He gave orders for it to be burned. Now, how do you burn something that is stone, completely stone, some wooden doors, overlaid with gold, and the whole interior of the temple was overlaid with gold? How do you burn that? What they did was they cut down the olive trees from the Mount of Olives. And history tells us that they took then the limbs and the branches of the olive trees, and they put them in the temple, and they put them around the outside of the temple, and then they lit the branches on fire, and the natural oil of the olive wood served as an accelerant, and the intensity of the fires melted the gold that was inlaying the interior And all of the gold dripped within the crevices of the stone walls and in the crevices of the stone floor. And after the fire was over and things cooled down, Roman soldiers dismantled the temple uh, stone by stone to chisel out all the gold that had melted in the crevices. And that became the plunder for their service. They plundered the gold that had melted on the temple mount. And so they threw the stones off in the process of dismantling the temple after they had burned it and after they were retreating the gold. Here's a picture behind me. This is in Israel today. Archaeologists have uncovered the original street level during the days of Jesus. And what looks like rubble over here is actually the stones that had been thrown off the temple mount by the Romans in 70 AD that still lie there in a heap on the original pavement level where Jesus would have walked as a reminder and a testimony of what happened in 70 AD. So when we go there, when tourists go there, we stop and we look, we see what Jesus said would happen, happened about 40 years after he prophesied it. Now you might be wondering, why haven't, why haven't the Jewish people built another temple since then? Because there hasn't been a temple for the Jews since 70 AD when the Romans destroyed it. And the answer is because From the time of the Roman occupation and following, Israel was always under foreign domination. So they didn't have the freedom to rebuild their temple until 1948. In 1948, when Israel asserted their independence as a nation that was born again and... And uh, I don't mean that in a spiritual sense, the rebirth of a nation and God. Well, in some sense, in a spiritual sense, and God gathered together Jews from all over the world. They made Aliyah, they made pilgrimage to Israel, the uh, revival of the, of the ancient Hebrew language. I mean, it's a, rem- a, a miraculous story and a remarkable story when you, when you really study the history of the, the reforming of the state of Israel. It's a God thing. And in 1948, when they asserted their independence and about... Um, uh, a dozen different Arab nations around them waged war to try to prevent them from establishing their independence, and they prevailed. Again, a miraculous story in how they prevailed. In 1948, though, at the end of the war, Israel was divided uh, sorry, Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem was divided East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem. And East Jerusalem was in the hands of the Jordanians, and West Jerusalem was in the hands of the Israelis. But the problem was that the Jordanians never really respected the the, the peace deal, and they continued to prevent the Jewish people from having any real access to the Temple Mount, and so the Jordanians controlled it, and so they, they still didn't have free reign to do what they wanted on the Temple Mount. Come 1967, in, in the 1967 war that Israel fought, um, they recaptured all of the city of Jerusalem, and so they maintained control of it today, except... As part of signing a peace deal after the 1967 war, then Minister of Defense Moshe Dayan agreed to allow the Muslims to have the administrative control of just the Temple Mount area. It's about 35 acres where the the Temple of God used to stand. Now presently, just the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque stand there because it's one of the holy sites that, that Muslims see for them as well. So Moshe Dayan, Minister of Defense for Israel, signed in the peace treaty that you can continue to maintain administrative right over the Temple Mount. You get to decide what goes there and what does not go there. It was not a great decision. For this reason, Moshe Dayan has no portrait to him, no statue to him, no... He's basically been scrubbed from Israeli history in terms of the public view of anything that honors him. And so the Jewish people have never had the opportunity to once again build the temple. It has been vacant... Since 70 AD. And Jesus prophesies this. It comes to pass. Now, um, before any of that happened, though, Jesus just prophetically says this is going to happen. His disciples react, as you might imagine they would. They're like, What in the world are you talking about? And so his disciples then come to him privately. Now they've gone to the Mount of Olives and they're sitting there with Jesus and they ask him two questions. Because they really want to know three things. And here are the two questions. It's in verse 3. If you look at your Bibles again, verse 3. It says, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be? And second question, And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So the second question has really two parts to it. Here are the three things they basically want to know. One, when will these things happen? Meaning the destruction of the temple. Two, What will be the sign of your coming? Three, what will be the sign of the end of the age? Now, at first glance, it looks like the disciples are making some pretty intelligent theological questions here about the end times. I mean, the D team is interested in eschatology, like, whoa, you know, but at closer examination, what we really find is in reality, they are showing their ignorance about end times And Jesus is going to use the rest of the chapter to kind of straighten out their theology. Because it is thought that when the disciples hear Jesus talk about the destruction of the temple, they think it is tied to the end of the age. So they want to know, well, when will these things happen, the destruction of the temple? Because that must mean then it's the end of the age. And also in there, what will be the sign of your coming? Now, it's unlikely that they really understood that he's coming again so what they probably are asking is, when will be the coming of your power and, and your, your, your ruling here? Because they, were, they understood he was Messiah, but their concept of Messiah was, you're coming to put down the oppression of Rome, and you're going to establish your kingdom, right? It's going to be the end of the age. So when you describe the destruction of the temple, you're telling us that you're coming into power, and it's going to be the end of the age, right? When will these things happen? And Jesus is going to spend the rest of the chapter kind of untangling their their theology here to help them understand that the destruction of the temple is not tied to the end of the age, not directly at least. He's not coming back at that time. He didn't come back at that time. The destruction of the temple was just one pivotal event in the course of human history that does serve a major purpose though. You know, in God's economy of things, look at what he did By allowing the temple to be destroyed. A temple that was built to honor God, yeah. But you know what happened at the temple? Animal sacrifices that people would make to atone for their sins... Once Christ came, he did away with the sacrificial system because he came as the lamb that takes away the sins of the world to die for the sins of the world once and for all atonement is through faith in Jesus now, not through the slaughtering of animals. So it's kind of a wonderful thing in effect that what God did was eliminating the animal sacrificial system by eliminating the temple where you would sacrifice your animals so that the focus could be on his son, Jesus, the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. So Jesus said, this is going to happen. It's going to be destroyed. But the temple itself, as a place where animals would be sacrificed, not needed anymore. And God can be worshipped in all places. And so they started to move into synagogues instead of a central temple. But the animal sacrificial system at that point was done. Jesus is the only sacrifice that we need. So he helps his disciples here and us to understand the chronology of events that will happen leading up to his second coming. Everybody needs to understand Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. The Old Testament gave more than 300 prophecies related to his first coming, and Jesus fulfilled them all. Related to his second coming, the Bible gives three times as many prophecies. And you better believe Jesus is going to fulfill all those as well. And so we're going to look here together. Yes, amen and amen. We're going to look here together at chapter 24, and, and again, I apologize, I'm going to rush through this. The good thing is this will get archived tomorrow, and you can put me on pause and t- take notes if this is too fast for you for today. But we're going to take a look at the events that Jesus says will be leading up to his second coming. I have put them in, I've enumerated 15 major events, but you can, you know, you can enumerate them a little bit differently. That's not the issue. I just wanted to try to, try to make this as concise as I can with you. But I'm counting 15 major events that will precede his second coming from Matthew chapter 24. And Jesus seems to break down these 15 major events into three phases. Three phases. And he likens the phases to a woman who is pregnant and going into labor. And I'll show you in a moment where he actually says that. But, you know, it's an interesting... Uh, progression of things because the phases in chapter 24 get more intense as you get closer to a second coming, you know, and just like when a woman gives, you know, birth and she starts to go into labor, it gets more and more intense until she actually has the baby. Not that I speak from experience. I, uh, you know, I've never had a baby. I only helped a lady have one, my wife, uh, actually three. Um, I lose track, but, um, but, but we all know whether you've had a baby or not, there's like an intensity that happens. And so, especially you ladies who've had babies, right? That first phase of like those little contractions that like, I think they call it like the Braxton Hicks. Ooh, that little twinge. Oh, oh, little twinge there. Oh, I felt that. Okay, all right. But it's mild, mild contractions. Then you go in the hospital, you get hooked up to the the fetal monitor and then all of a sudden they start to pick up, they intensify. Now you're like... All right. All right. All right. You don't quite hate your husband yet, but you're getting there. You did this to me. All right. And then, and then the last phase is like, like, give me an epidural. Ah!" You know that, that's the last phase, right? Where things are really intense and they're happening. And that's the way we see it progressing through chapter 24. Now, lest you think I'm exaggerating, which sometimes I can, I think it's a spiritual gift. I'm not sure. But I actually want to point it out to you. Look here in your Bibles, verses 4 through 8. This is the first phase, verses 4 through 8. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, 'I I am the Christ, and will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. Verse 8, all these things are the beginning of sorrows, are the beginning of sorrows. Now, if you have an NIV Bible or ESV, it says these things are the beginning of birth pains. And the Greek word is odin, and that's what it means. So he's putting this in the context of there's going to be a mild aspect of labor, but it's going to intensify. It's going to get phase two is going to get, you know, more intense. And then the final phase is the hardest and most difficult and painful part of the whole thing. And so this is, this is how he speaks here concerning this. And actually Paul would write in first Thessalonians five, using the same analogy of a woman in labor, first Thessalonians five, one to three Paul says, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. So this is the, you know, the analogy here. And so what we're going to look at are the three phases. The signs of the times before Christ comes... And the verses I just read between verses four through eight really spell out phase one. And phase one includes, number one, deception by false Christs. Number two, wars and rumors of wars. Number three, famines. Number four, pestilences. Number five, earthquakes. I'm going to touch on each of these just real quickly. The deception by false Christs is a reality that probably you may not be as much aware of. There's actually a whole page in Wikipedia. Not that everything is reliable in Wikipedia. But there's actually a whole page in Wikipedia that is entitled, List of People Who Claimed to Be Jesus. In the 18th century, there were only two who claimed to be Jesus. In the 19th century, it went up to seven. And in the 20th and the 21st century, in our lifetime, 36 people claimed to be Jesus. Among them, some of the more familiar names, uh, Sun Yung Moon, Jim Jones, Charles Manson, David Koresh all these people claim to be Jesus. Now you might say, well, some of them might've had mental illness. I get that. Others were probably possessed. I get that too. Uh, But regardless, these are people who are saying that they are Jesus. Uh, Here's a couple of pictures of some people that you may not know about. This guy's name is Sergei uh, Torup. He's a Russian guy. He even dresses the part, doesn't he? Kind of looks like what our concept, concept of Jesus is. Uh, you know, I don't have a concept that he's, Jesus spoke with a Russian accent, but this is Sergei. Uh, he, uh, he, he used to be a former traffic cop. And then he decided, no, nah, I think I'm Jesus. And so that's what he does now and uh, in in Russia. Nyet, uh, not a real Christ, nyet. Uh, so, sorry, Sergei. Um, And then check out these folks. I think they got a little lost after Woodstock, but but this is A.J. Miller, Alan John Miller, and Mary Luck, and he believes he's Jesus, and she believes that she is Mary Magdalene, and they're married, and they have a ministry in Australia. And it's, it's really bizarre. If you go to their website, uh, which I'm not going to give out because then it just, uh, you know, gives them traffic there. But, but on, the, on the homepage, it, I looked it up last night and it said, here's a message from Jesus. <laughs> well, I kind of already have the message from Jesus. It's kind of right here. <laughs> but thank you very much, AJ. And so um, they're in Australia. Um, So that's kind of a a weird thing that uh, Jesus has an Australian accent. Not that he's going to have an English accent, you know, by the way, but um, the real Jesus. But A.J. Miller used to be a Jehovah's Witness elder and uh, decided, I guess, he wasn't deceived enough, so I'm going to then also be Jesus. And these people are out there. It's just, it's crazy, but they're out there. All right, back to our list real quickly. Wars and rumors of wars, number two. According to the the warsintheworld.com, presently there are 851 conflicts in 70 countries around the world right now. Famines. In 2019, 851 million people uh, are considered food insecure, and of that, 149 million are starving right now. Pestilences. Do we need to talk about this? I mean, we're in a supposed pandemic uh, with COVID and there are now mutations and variants and all this stuff. Uh, there's antibiotic resistant bacteria because of the overprescription of antibiotics. We know this, right? We got MRSA. We got serious stuff like cancer. We got HIV. So there are all kinds of things that are happening in our world in terms of diseases. Uh, number five, earthquakes. Uh, the U.S. Geological Survey. My dad worked for them before he retired. Um They, they, on their website, they say about 20,000 earthquakes around the globe happen every year. We just don't feel most of them. They're minor. That's 55 a day. Since they started keeping records in 1900, um, on average, there are 16 major earthquakes a year. That's 7.0 or higher on the Richter scale. And in 2010, just, you know, like a decade or more ago, there were 24 in that one year. Look in your Bible to phase two. Look at verses 9 to 14. Verse 9, then they will deliver you up to uh, tribulation and kill you and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake and then many will be offended. The Greek word there is skandalizo means they will fall away from the faith will betray one another and will hate one another. And then many false witnesses will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness or wickedness will abound, the love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. So labor intensifies here. Phase two includes this. Number six, persecution of Christians. Number seven, apostasy. A falling away of the faith. Number eight, betrayal and and hatred in the world. Number nine, increased deception by false prophets. Number 10, increased wickedness. Number 11, decreased love. Number 12, the spreading of the gospel globally. And so these are the things that will also happen prior to a second coming. The top five, talking about persecution of Christians, the top five countries in the world who persecute Christians according to open doors, number one, North Korea, number two, Afghanistan, number three, Somalia, number four, Libya, number five, Pakistan. 245 million Christians around the world suffer what is called high levels of persecution for their faith. That's one in nine Christians. We just don't see much of it because we enjoy relative comfort in our country. That might be changing though. And in 2019, when they last did stats, 4,136 Christians were killed for their faith just in that year. 2,625 Christians were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, and imprisoned. And in the same year, 1,266 churches or Christian buildings were attacked. So persecution is on the rise. Number seven, apostasy and abandoning of the faith. Number eight, betrayal and hatred. Hatred's running high in our nation. Number nine, increased deception by false prophets. Number 10, increased wickedness. Now, verse verse 12, Jesus uses the word lawlessness in New King James, but it's a Greek word that means that they have shunned the law of God. So it's wickedness that is increasing. Number 11, decreased love. Verse 12 says the love of many will grow cold. That's agape, by the way. The agape love will grow cold. Number 12 is good news, the spreading of the gospel globally. Globally. I mean, we're living in the information age, and so this is wonderful that the gospel is getting out and getting into places where otherwise it has never uh, reached, and, uh, and, you know, just even in our own church, we're reaching uh, more people across the globe than ever through our social media and our online presence. Just four months ago, the subscribers to our YouTube channel was 3,000, and now it's 45,000 and growing. Just four months ago. So, I mean, God is working in different ways. Um, I get mail every day from some other part of the world. Uh, I've gotten mail from Christians in Iran who follow us, uh, South Africa, Australia, uh, England, India. I mean, it's amazing at how the gospel's going forth. So, that is happening. But let me look at the last phase before we close with you. And if you'll look at verse 15. In verse 15. Jesus says, "Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is in on the housetop go, not go down to take anything out of his house, and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days! And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great." "...tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand." And therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert. Do not go out or look. He's in Australia or Russia. (laughs) Yeah, no. If he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the son of man. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. That's kind of a A funny verse but what he means there it's basically a figure of speech like what we would say where there's smoke there's fire that's what he means there the last phase is the most intense this is the you know this is the excruciating painful time that's coming upon the earth just prior to christ coming so in the scale of you know intensity of labor giving birth this is the worst part of it now when i look at bible chronology i don't believe that we're here for phase three But nevertheless, in phase three, he talks about the abomination of desolation. That is the the anticipation of the Antichrist. There will be a charismatic global world leader who emerges on the world scene to be a world dictator over the globe. That's what the Bible tells us. This Antichrist will be opposed to God and everything about God. He will be possessed by Satan. And in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, it says that he will set himself up in God's temple in Jerusalem and proclaim himself to be God and demand to be worshipped, which also tells us that the temple will be rebuilt. In order for that to happen, the temple will be rebuilt. Unfortunately, it will be rebuilt to honor the Antichrist. And he will set himself up there to be worshipped as Messiah. And the eyes of many will be opened when he breaks a covenant of peace. Daniel talks about this in his book. That's why Jesus says, as spoken of by the prophet Daniel, he breaks a covenant of peace halfway into a seven-year deal, and the eyes of the Jewish people will be opened in particular to the fact that they've been duped. He's not the real Messiah. So this person is coming onto the world scene. Again, I don't believe that we'll be here as Christians. We'll be taken, we'll be raptured before the appearance of the Antichrist but he's going to come. Number 14, great tribulation on earth. That's what Jesus says in verse 21. Uh, All of these things we've covered in our Wednesday night study, the intensity of the great tribulation between Revelation 6 to 18. You can go back in our teaching library and listen to our Wednesday night revelation study. That's what he's talking about. What is going to happen upon the earth, cataclysmic world events. And then finally, number 15, the rise of more false Christs and false prophets performing false signs and wonders. But Jesus said in verse 27, he goes, listen, but don't think that you're, you need to be deceived when somebody says, well, he's he's here or the, the Messiah is there because he says in verse 27, as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will be the coming of the son of man. The second coming of Jesus will be visible and powerful and every eye will see him and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. You don't have to worry, I'm gonna miss it. You know, oh, I didn't know he showed up in Australia. No, no, like lightning in the sky, everybody gonna be able to see him. And that's why Jesus says this in verses 29 and 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Can I get an amen to that? Now, before we close, just give me two more minutes. You've been gracious, but two more minutes. Because the question becomes on the minds of many people... Well, what phase are we in? Okay? Clearly, we're in phase one and most of phase two. Um, it, it's undeniable, really. Even in phase two, when you think about the persecution of Christians, more Christians have been persecuted in the last century than in the previous 19 combined. Okay? When you, when you talk about apostasy, I mean, there's a denial of truth and God's word in churches and seminaries like never before. People who are denying the faith. There's a hatred in our country, a vitriol like I've never seen before. There's the increase of wickedness for sure, because we are legalizing and celebrating sin like never before. We're seeing also, in a good way, the gospel spreading around the world at a record pace because of social media and technology. So I think we're into phase two. I would never presume to put a date on when Christ will return. That's a false teacher who would ever do that kind of a thing. But I think when you look at the signs of the times, we're in phase one and into phase two. And the only thing that separates phase two from phase three is the rapture of the church. So we need to be ready, which is the bigger question. Not as much the question, what phase are we in? The bigger question is, are you ready? Because if you look at verse 36... Jesus says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And then he follows up in verse 44, and he says, therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. That's the bigger question. Not what phase are we in, but are you ready? Are you ready for the second coming of Christ? Now, interestingly, after Jesus makes that statement there, The rest of chapter 24 and into chapter 25, he teaches three parables so we can know what it means to be ready. Those three parables will be the topic of the next three Sundays, okay? So read ahead because we need to be ready, amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for the reminder that when we start to get weighed down by the things of this world, that... You're coming again. So we don't need to lose heart. We need to represent you well in the earth until you come again. We need to be watching and ready. But Lord, when our hearts start to get weighed down, may we lift up our heads and look up because our redemption draws near. We look forward to your imminent return. And I pray, Lord, over the next few weeks that we would examine our hearts to make sure that we are ready for your second coming. Find us faithful, Lord. Find us ready and watching in wonderful expectation of your second coming. We love you and we praise you together in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.